Lord, we've just read in the opening chapter of your word how you spoke and a new world came into being. Lord, we believe in the creative power of your word. So we ask that you come today by your spirit and speak. And we pray that a new world would be born in each one of our lives. A different way of looking at you, at ourselves, and how you've called us to live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this year, I started reading uh, what's ended up being one of Amazon's surprised bestsellers of recent times, Norwegian Wood. It's a great book. It's, yeah, it's about wood. It's about how you cut it, how you chop it, how you stack it, and how you do that the way uh, Scandinavian folks do. Now, if you think that sounds boring... I need to tell you that it won the Amazon Nonfiction Award of 2016. And as I say, countless thousands of people the world over have bought it. There's a quotation on the back of the book from Henry David Thoreau, the American poet and philosopher. It says, Every man looks at his woodpile with a kind of affection. <laughs> to be honest, when I first saw it, I thought... It was a kind of a so what kind of a quotation. didn't speak to me. At least not until I started cutting, chopping, and stacking wood. Claire and I have recently bought a a wee cottage in the foothills of the Mourns, and one of the things I get to do and love to do when I'm down there is cutting some of the fallen wood that's fallen on the site or uh, that the farmer from nearby throws over the fence to me. So whenever I'm cutting and splitting and stacking wood for our indoor fire or outdoor fire pit, I have grown to love my wood pile. Here's a photograph of it. It's growing. I now know what Thoreau was talking about. The affection. I'll tell you what I love about my wood pile. I made it. It's mine. I conceived it. I willed it. And then I turned my hand to put it there. I love it because I made it. There's another reason I love it. I love it because it is beautiful. Isn't it? Isn't it beautiful? You're only seeing a photograph. You need to be there. (laughs) The various orange shades of the wood. The brown of the bark on the outside of each piece, the various sizes and shapes fitting together. I love my woodpile because it is beautiful. And you'll know that feeling too, if you've created something that's beautiful. Actually, each piece in this woodpile is beautiful, and I thought I would... um, I can't bring you there to show you the woodpile, so I thought I'd bring a couple of pieces to you. I thought I'd pass these along start at the front here just take it hold it for as long as you need to to see how beautiful it is not too long because we need to get round so we're going to go down the center aisles first and then come back up the the side aisles just just look at the color of that wood and the the green 
The smell's not as good as it was when I cut it. There might be just a, a small hint of the, the smell of the life that was in that wood sometime. Why am I telling you all this? Well, it's because I've come to see my wee wood pile and that sense of affection that we have for the things that we create as a very small metaphor for the huge thing that's going on in Genesis chapter 1. God creates a world and he loves it. And that's what we're going to think about today. Last week we began this new series and we went back to the very beginning. We actually only had a couple of verses at the start of the chapter to look at. And we, you'll remember we talked about in the beginning God, the very first thing that we can say about life isn't us. It's not this world, it's God. And then we went to see how God uh, went on to create that world, how he overruled the chaos, the emptiness, the darkness to, to create a, a beautiful world. So verses in 1 and 2, I think, just introduce the whole story. They, they tell us the whole story the way a, sort of a, a young boy would write an English essay. Uh, how short can I make this? Then the chapter now expands on verses 1 and 2 and tells us a little bit more. So let's have a look at these texts. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through six days. Um, We'll look for patterns. Look at verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And if you look down verses 6, 9, 14, 20, 24, you'll see the same phrase repeated each time. And God says, so God creates by speaking. Have you ever tried that? It doesn't work very well for me. Um, I, I've never managed to produce anything uh, just by speaking. I think that's really important. It, in, it just reminds us again of the, of the absolute power of God. The speaking here is kind of a metaphor for his will. Just his, if he wants it, it happens. When God will something it comes to be and the pattern of the chapter really reinforces that so six times uh, we have this idea and God said so God's God's willing something he's conceived something he wants to execute it and then it's it's followed by this sorry and God said let there be six times over let there be light let there be an expanse to separate water from water, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and dry ground appear. Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. Let there be water teeming with living creatures. Let the land produce living creatures. God speaks his will. He says, let there be. And back to verse 3, we see the outcome. First time he says it, God says, let there be, and there was. Let there be light, and there was light. God says it, and it happens. And it's the same for each of these commands. These huge creation commandments, and in a very nonchalant way, the the writer just tells us, yeah, God said it. And it was so. Over and over and over again. When he commands something, it happens. In a sense, what we've just talked about here isn't a million miles away from what we talked about last week, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much longer. Just a couple of implications from this, this idea that God created the world. 
First thing is, we don't worship creation. It's something outside of him. He created it. Creation isn't divine. Creation is something that God put in place. That's, that's a message we just need to remind ourselves of uh, with some of the, the ideas and philosophies that are around these days. Second implication, I think, of God creating. If God made this world, it belongs to him. It doesn't belong to us. And we treat it with respect. Isn't that what you teach your kids when they're dealing with somebody else's property? If it's somebody else's property, would maybe say to them, listen, you can't treat that like that. That doesn't belong to you. And and you'll know uh, we could go a long way with that. We could talk about what it means to be good, good stewards of the earth. And we will talk about that more in the weeks ahead. God loved the world because he created it. I'm going to move on from that. I'm going to focus most of our time this morning on this second idea. God loved the world because it's good. Look at verse 4. God saw that the light was good. Here and throughout the chapter, every time that God creates something, he then, part of the rhythm is that he, he says it, it's created He steps back, has a look at it, and he says that it's good. The light's good, the land and the seas are good, the sun, moon, and stars are good, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the land animals, they're they're all good. And, And as you maybe know, verse 31, the verdict's even better. When God takes a a step back and he looks at the whole thing, including human beings, he says, or it says, God saw all that he had made and It was very good. All that he has made, very good. Okay, nothing's missing, and it's not okay. It's very good. I wonder if we believe that. Do you really believe that everything that God has given us is very good? I'll be honest with you, it's not the impression I grew up with as a good Ulster evangelical. It felt to me like there was a whole lot in the world that wasn't very good. Um, Certain kinds of music were bad, and they seemed to be the ones that I wanted to listen to at the time. Um, Pubs and clubs were bad, places that you shouldn't go to. Drink was bad, sex was a dirty word, and the list goes on of things that were bad. And maybe you, you have a similar experience, that the circle of what's very good was drawn very small in your experience. Whenever I read about how God created the world in Genesis 1, all of that just doesn't make as much sense to me anymore. I think, well, God's made it all, and it's all very good. How how could all these things be bad whenever God himself has said that they're good? And I've come to the conclusion that the things in this world are bad only to the extent that they're the corruption of something good. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. There must be something good before it can be spoiled. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that put badness right in its box? It's so rubbish. 
It's not as exotic as we thought. It's just something good that's gone off. Let's test that idea for a second and see if it, if it really makes sense. Is greed bad? Well, well, of course it is. But only to the extent that it's the corruption of something good. It's okay to enjoy what the Lord has given us in creation. It's okay to, to gather a little bit of it so that we can look after our families and anybody else who's dependent on us. But once our desire for material things begins to, to become a competitive thing where I want to have more of the good thing than the other guy, and once I don't care that the other guy actually doesn't have anything, then a, a healthy appreciation of, of life and its things has become greed, and, and that's bad. Is drunkenness bad? Well, yes, it is but only to the extent that it's the corruption of a good thing. Fermented grapes and hops are the gift of a loving God. Anybody who's ever enjoyed a good glass of red or likes a cool pint on a hot day will know that. But if we're honest about it, we know too of the, the heartache that can be caused of uh, an abuse of alcohol or actually lots of substances once we move into addictive relationships with God's good gifts. We find we, body, we damage our own bodies, we damage our relationships with other people, we, we, we end up wrecking the place. Is pornography bad? Well, yeah, it is. To the extent that it's a corruption of a good thing, Human sexuality is a beautiful gift from a loving creator God. He gives it to us uh, as a gift to enjoy. God's verdict on his creation is that it's all very good. So God's intention is that we are people who express our sexuality, but that we do so in loving, faithful, and respectful relationships. So pornography is a, a flagrant corruption of that. It's an attempt to have the, the good gift of God without having the right context in a loving, faithful, committed relationship. And as we seem to be hearing almost every day now, it, it often leads to corruption, or sorry, exploitation of somebody somewhere along the line. Badness is only ever spoiled goodness. Isn't that fascinating? Badness just isn't as cool as it makes out. There's always something better if we just take the time and have the heart to go and find it. It's the goodness that's the real thing. Before I move on from this, uh, this astonishing sense of, of the goodness of God, I want, to, I want to share with you a sense that I've had this week as I've dwelt on this. I've been stuck by the absolute gratuitous nature of, of the beauty of creation. What I mean by that is it's far more beautiful than it needs to be. It could be just made out of concrete and plastic. In fact, when you leave human beings to their own devices, that's what it would be. Concrete, plastic, and function. But it's not like that at all, is it? 
that bird song I heard early this morning, I don't know how you would even think of that to create that sound. But the Lord does, and not only one sound, but we have a clock down in, in our cottage, and it, it has a different bird song for each hour. Some people are nodding. I, like, I can't learn them. There's too many different bird songs. There's just too much beauty. And I don't know what your favorite um, engagements with creation are. I'll tell you what some of mine are. If I'm, if I'm at the beach or at a lake on a sunny day, it, it must be something to do with the angle of the light. Do you know when the sun's shining and it shimmers on the water? The whole place lights up. I just love that. Or whenever there's been a fall of snow, that's something that we don't see very often, obviously. But, but you know when there's been a deep, thick fall of snow and there's a sort of a blanket of silence? The world goes quiet. Just beautiful. I love, I, every year I love, um, you know walking along a pavement with dry leaves? The rustle of dry leaves. Anybody like that? It's brilliant. Every year, bring it, bring it on. Actually, I just I got into the whole trees thing and I thought, that, that's a bit mad, isn't it? This is the gratuitous thing that I'm talking about. It's all so beautiful. Why, is it, why does it have to be so beautiful? Think of a tree. This time of the year, we see it doing the thing that we notice. It, it, its green leaves turn yellow, orange, or red. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And then over the next couple of months, it'll, it'll gently lay down its clothing. And it'll stand there bare and quiet and still for four or five months. And come the spring, it'll explode into green. And it'll give that beautiful contrast between, you know, a green leaf against a bright blue sky. Something about those two colors that really work for me. Just standing and seeing it. And it'll give us shade and coolness uh, from the hot summer days. Sorry, I used a bit of poetic license there. The hot summer days. If you don't know what that is, I'll explain that later. And then it all starts again. And we just go around the cycle and you wonder, like, why don't the trees just get, get leaves and stay there? What, what, why does all the beauty have to just go and go and go? Folks, I think the sheer beauty of God's creation ought to speak to us. And if it's not speaking to you, I'd ask you to, to leave this place today with your eyes open and just see if you're missing something. It seems to me like this invitation where he speaks of his incredible love for us. It's like the Lord says to us, look, it's beautiful. Come and enjoy your place in this world. Find your place in my story. Let's go together. Come and be with me. God loves the world because he made it because he created it and because it's, it is beautiful we're, we're nearly done um, I want to spend the last few minutes dealing with a question I don't think you can really do the Genesis 1 sermon and not do the question so it's the question about how, how much should we believe Genesis 1 we're modern people uh, we live in the times in which we live did God really create the world in six days 
Well, I, I don't want to throw my stuff at you. I, I think the best way to deal with that is to return to the text. So have a quick look with me. We read in verse 5. We've really focused on the first day of creation and used it to, to notice the patterns. But if you read back in verse 5, we read that after God created the light and separated it from the darkness, God called the light day and the darkness he calls night. By the way, if you, in the Bible, if you get to name something, that means you're in charge. Simple as that. It's another way of, of telling us that God's over creation. He gets to give it names. He, he gets to... To, to rule over it, if you like. And at the end of verse 5, we see this sentence that brings the paragraph to a close. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And if you scan down the, the chapter, you'll see references to the second day, the third day, right down to the sixth day. And it does seem, when you read it, that Genesis is telling us that God made the world in six days. And this is where modern people become skeptical of the Bible. Actually, I, I've encountered some people who don't think they can believe in Jesus Christ or the gospel, this news of how God rescues and restores. They, don't, they think they can't believe that because they know they don't believe Genesis 1. So it's actually it's important to think about this just for a moment as we close today. I'm going to ask you to, to think hard with me for a second about this Genesis creation account. Forget about how the world was made. Think of the text in front of us for a second. We're trying to work out whether this account contradicts the, the finding of science. So let me ask you, right? Look at the text. Does that look to you like a scientific account of the creation of the world? Does it give us a lot of stuff about um, periods of time? Does it give us a detailed schedule of chemical reactions, of biological processes that brought the world into being? Is that what that passage is trying to do? I'm not sure what you're getting, but the answer is no. Okay? Do you, do you see that? That that's not a, a scientific Account. It's not an attempt to be a scientific account. It reads more like a, a poetic, um, a, a poetic piece where the literary structure uh, seems to be very much at the fore. So I'm going to say this morning that Genesis one doesn't talk a whole lot about how the the world was created, but it talks about who, who created it. And we've talked about that a lot so far. We're being told that this world came into being because God willed it. And we're shown here that this world depends on God's will and his purpose and his presence. Okay, well what about the six days then? Very quickly, let me point out, you know, there might be more, but broadly three different ways that you could think about the six days. Uh, some people have understood the six days literally. And that is that they say, well, because the Bible says it, I believe it. God made the world in six days of 24 hours. Um, and that, that's one of the views people would have about creation. Lots of people no longer believe that, even though they believe the Bible. So this is where we need to, to think a little bit harder. They would say something like, I absolutely believe God could have made the world in six days. 
I have no doubt about God's power. No doubt at all. I just don't think that he did. I don't think that that bears out. So that's a first group of people, a literal uh, six days. There's a second interpretation. Some people have understood Genesis 1 to describe six extended ages or periods. So they'll say that the word, or the word day is used in a, in a broad sense. It's a period of time. It can be millions or billions of years long. And undoubtedly that could be the case. I just don't think it makes the best sense of the text. I'm keeping you with the text, okay? I'm not, I don't want to swim around in um, the big ideas. I want to understand the biblical text. So thirdly, a third option, this uh, six days of creation is best understood as a poetic structure. And it's designed to illustrate the, the order of God's creation. This is how I understand Genesis 1. Okay? A close examination, I want, I want you to work hard with me. I don't do this to you very often. Once in a while, and I always warn you, if it's getting a bit harder, I always warn you. So this is a bit harder, okay? But this is important. So work with me here. You may be able to read the slide. If you can't, you can see it in the text. So if we pop up that last slide. In the first three days of creation, God deals with... Do you remember last week we talked about the problems in the world, the tovu vabohu? Can you say that again? Tovu vabohu. There's, the earth lacks form and it's empty. It's got tohu and it's got bohu. So in the first three days, God deals with the tohu. That is, he says, this place is formless. I'm going to bring it form and structure. The metaphor I have in my head is, this place is a mess. I'm going to put the shelves in place. So he does, look at the text. Isn't that what he does? He separates on day one light from darkness. He, He starts to separate things and organize them. Day two, he separates the waters above and the waters below. Day three, he separates uh, the water itself on the earth from the land and gives us sea sea and land. So all he's been doing is setting it up, putting the shelving in place. And then if you, you notice, this is where it gets interesting. Each of the next three days corresponds with the first ones, and you see it here on the board. So... Day four lines up with day one. So whenever you've separated light and darkness, then you you fill the emptiness by putting in the sun, the moon, and the stars. Once you've created sea, sea, sorry, and sky, then you fill it by putting the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. On day six, once you've created dry land, you fill it with animals and, and even eventually human beings. So this is what happens. And I think there's a clue here. I think this shows us that you're not supposed to read the account as a a logical or chronological unfolding of creation. If it was a logical order, surely day four would come before day one. You'd put in place the sun, moon, and stars to separate light from darkness. Do you see see what I mean? Do you see the logic of that? Um, But that's not what happened. And, and there it is. I, 
I remember sharing this uh, one time, and I, I was just a bit worried that somebody would count me a heretic, and any efforts that I'd made in recent times to teach them the Bible would be dismissed, and everything I say from, from there on. I found a friend in his 1972 book, Understanding the Bible, John Stott has this to say about the Genesis 1 account. Some Christians today defend the concept of a literal six-day creation, but the text doesn't demand it, and scientific discovery appears to contradict it. The biblical text presents itself not as a scientific treatise, but as a highly stylized literary statement, deliberately framed in three pairs, the fourth day corresponding to the first, the fifth to the second, and the sixth to the third. So, we're, whatever you think of me or of John Stott, we're in halfway decent company here. The Genesis account, I think, talks about a loving God who sees a place of chaos and of emptiness and of darkness and says, I'm going to do something with that that shows my love and actually my beauty. Way more of my beauty than it needs to because I'm a lavish, loving, beautiful God. We're pretty much done here. I want to wrap things up in a minute or two. We've been talking this morning about this world that God's created and his view of it. How he loves it because he made it, because it's uh, so beautiful. The affection that a man has for his woodpile, great though that might be, and you maybe sense that today, or that affection you have for the, the things that you create and achieve and do, it's only a tiny metaphor of the love and affection that our God has for this world that he created. It's enough to make you wonder, isn't it? 2016. Does he still love it? All the images you have in your head of that world that God created way back then, whenever it was, they're that Garden of Eden kind of place, that place of perfection and beauty. And then you flick on your news and you see 2016. Does he still love this place? with its wars and its refugees, its pollutions, its global warming, its broken relationships, broken homes, broken societies. How strong is that affection these days? Well, we get a glimpse of God's ongoing affection for this place that he's created in the words of a Palestinian teacher of the first century. He spoke some words sometime that became so well known that people still talk about them, still paint them on the side of their houses, bring them to football matches. This young teacher reassured his audience that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. And this particular preacher knew what he was talking about because 
the, the God who loved the world was his dad who loved it because he'd made it and because it was beautiful. And the son who was sent into the world, he knew that was him. And he knew that he had come to take the bad stuff and to, to restore it, to make it good again. That's what he said, isn't it? In his own words. We'll have to wait till Revelation till we hear him say them. I make all things new. Folks, God loves this world because he made it. Because it's beautiful. But he loves it too because Jesus died for it. To restore it. We're going to think some more about that as we move forward in our series. Let's pray.